I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.3, Vicky, Britain's Princess Royal and the Prussian Prince. In the last two episodes, we set the background for the second season of The Other Half, which we are calling The Mothers of World War I. In the first episode, we laid out the framework of the series and gave a brief overview of the players involved. Last time, in episode two, we looked at the woman who started this whole thing, Queen Victoria, one of the most important leaders in history. One of the reasons why I dedicated a whole episode to introducing her is that, while we won't be covering her in detail, She is a vital part of the story, and her journals are one of the most important primary sources. I hazard that she will turn up in most episodes of this second season, as she was the foundation upon which this enormous family of women was built. Today, we finish off the background and get into the guts of the story. First, we're going to do a bit of background on German Impression history up to the point where our story begins introduce Prince Friedrich, also known as Frederick or Fritz, and then finally welcome to the stage our first proper subject of the series, Princess Vicky. But before we get going, I just wanted to give my usual thanks to my patrons on Patreon. They have been instrumental in keeping this show going through my various house and job moves over the past few months, and I cannot thank them enough. If you too would like to help support the show, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. On the 3rd of August 1914, Sir Edward Grey, the experienced British Foreign Secretary, stood with a friend at the window of his office. 
He'd spent the last few days and weeks furiously negotiating, desperately trying to avert war from breaking out between all the great powers of Europe for the first time in nearly 100 years. His great desire was to maintain the peace, but the incoming tide of war was unstoppable. He looked down at the darkening street below and saw a workman lighting the street lamps. Turning to his friend, he remarked, quote, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. The First World War pitted Sir Edward Grey's British Empire, along with her allies, against Germany and hers. Diplomatic blunders, ambition, hubris and just plain old bad luck had all played their part in leading Europe on this collision course with destruction. Yet, it was never meant to be this way. Great Britain and Germany were never supposed to be enemies. They were supposed to be partners. The ancient, august, trading British Empire and the newly unified Marshall German Empire were meant to form a Teutonic power block that would help bring continued peace and prosperity to the continent. Many held this dream, but its two main proponents were Prince Albert, newly minted Prince Consort of the United Kingdom and son of a German Duke, and his great friend and advisor, Baron Christian von Stockmar, who came up with the grand scheme in the 1850s. Europe in the 1850s looked very different from the continent that Sir Edward Grey was trying to prevent from tearing itself apart. But Great Britain, in many ways, saw itself as playing the same sort of role. The fraught, hot summer days of July 1914 saw Great Britain being one of the principal proponents for peace, largely because it was entirely within her interests to do so. For a long time, she had appointed herself as the world's policeman. The secret to her power was not overwhelming military might, it was in trade. Through her empire, and admittedly through having the world's largest and most powerful navy, both military and merchant, she guarded the world's trading routes, enforcing the Pax Britannica. Great Britain saw itself as a model of the enlightened nation. The workshop and banker of the world, a beacon of enlightened liberalism, the home of innovation, commerce and humanitarian concern. She had, in her view, the perfect political system, with an elected parliament that held most of the power in the land, but tempered by the hereditary House of Lords and a restricted monarchy. Great Britain saw this system as the ideal way of staving off reactionary conservative absolutism on the one hand, and the anarchy of revolution that was the natural outcome of republicanism on the other. There was only one thing that could threaten the sweet, sweet status quo that Great Britain had engineered for itself. War is a great disruptor of trade and commerce, and so it was the single greatest threat to the world's greatest trading nation. Great Britain did not have the military might to prevent war from breaking out. She could police the waves, but her army had always been far smaller than those on the continent. She needed an ally that had that army. Albert and von Stockmar recognised this, and they identified Prussia as that vital ally. But their designs were far greater than that. They didn't just want an alliance with one of the German powers. They wanted to see every German state united under one banner and bonded together with Britain through marriage, one between the eldest daughter of the British Queen and the future King of Prussia. But before we get into the story of how that match came about, 
I think it's worth giving a quick overview of Prussia and of the German states more generally. Germany today is one of the world's richest and most powerful nations, and yet it is also one of the youngest. It was first unified as one nation after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, and since then has undergone a number of mostly violent transitions until reaching its current state in 1990. But the idea of Germany has been around for far longer than that. The name derives from the Roman name Germania, and has been around since at least the days of the late Republic. The Romans only ever managed to incorporate part of what is now modern Germany into their empire, and this was not for want of trying. Tens of thousands of troops were lost trying to subdue the German tribes, but they never quite managed it. The first notion of a united Germany came during the reign of Emperor Charlemagne in the early 9th century. A king emerging from modern-day France, he managed to reconquer much of the Western Empire, including much of Germania that the Romans had never managed to incorporate. After his death, his empire was split in three, with his grandson Louis inheriting the German territories. About a century later, after quite a bit of warfare in Italy, one of his successors, Otto, got himself crowned emperor of a realm known as the Holy Roman Empire, a state that would endure for 900 years. Over its history, the Holy Roman Empire's territory, authority and power would wax and wane according to the times. But what is truly amazing about it is its longevity. Historians have frequently derided it as the quintessential example of a flawed and failed state, and yet it did endure for nearly a millennium. So, what was the Holy Roman Empire? It was a confederation of not only a huge number of states, but a great many kinds and size of state. You had hundreds of different kingdoms, principalities, duchies, counties, prince bishoprics, and free imperial cities. It would take me hours just to explain how the whole thing worked. But if I were to simplify it greatly... I would describe it as the archetypal feudal state, with a collection of vassals acting with varying degrees of autonomy and an emperor at the top who held almost all the prestige but could only get things done with the consent of those vassals. This meant that different parts of the Holy Roman Empire would often end up warring with another part, most notably during the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, where around a third of the population of the empire was killed by the conflict, either by battle, disease, or famine. Its territory, of course, included a great many areas that lie outside of modern Germany, running from Italy in the south, parts of modern France and Switzerland to the west, and Poland, Hungary, and Czechia to the east. But while it contained myriad nationalities, religions, and cultures, its beating heart was German, concentrated in the modern period through the domination of the Habsburgs, based in modern Austria. Outside of the Habsburgs, there were a number of kingdoms within the Holy Roman Empire, not including the King of the Germans, which was an elective office always held by the Habsburg emperors. The most powerful of these kingdoms, though, was the Protestant Kingdom of Prussia, which was ruled by the House of Hohenzollern. It's hard to define exactly where Prussia was, as it expanded and contracted greatly over the centuries, but by the time our story starts in the mid-19th century, it contained most of eastern Germany, a good chunk of modern western Poland and the Baltic states, as well as assorted bits of western Germany as well. Its capital was in Berlin. 
It always had a formidable martial reputation, punching well above its weight in the plethora of wars in 18th century Europe, most especially when ruled by Frederick the Great. It got pretty well punched in the mouth by Napoleon, but it managed to survive, unlike the Holy Roman Empire, which was dissolved after being pummeled by the French Emperor in a series of disastrous wars. It was replaced by the Austrian Empire, which still held onto quite a bit of the old territory, including Hungary, Czechia and the Balkans, but its hold over the various German states was irrevocably loosened. Both Prussia and Austria managed to survive the Napoleonic Wars, though, and were major parties to the Congress of Vienna, which created a union of German states called the German Confederation. The two great German powers were seen as the leaders of the Confederation, Prussia dominating the northern states and Austria the south. They were designed to be broadly similar in power, neither able to conquer the other. As I said earlier, this is a grossly simplified German history. If you'd like to know more, I'd recommend checking out one of the many German history podcasts out there. Okay, so now that we have a bit of background on Germany, let's focus a little more on 19th century Prussia. If I were to summarise it in a series of adjectives, I would use martial, Protestant, patriotic, austere, and disciplined. Prussia was an absolute monarchy. It did not have any kind of parliament worth a name, nor did it have a constitution. It was, in many ways, a relic of the age of Louis XIV. It was a deeply conservative kingdom, a reaction to the Napoleonic Wars. Revolution in France had torn Europe apart, killing millions and threatening the very social order that the elites had been building for centuries. This conservatism was rife across Europe, but the chief proponent of this was the great Austrian statesman Metternich. The mantra of the day was that reform, any kind of reform, was just one step on the slippery road toward revolution. Prussia therefore became a police state, denying a free press or criticism of the government. Civil rights were suppressed brutally, with the system rewarding blind loyalty to the regime and to Prussia. Like most young nations, Prussia cemented its population's loyalty through military glory, but they did it to an extreme. Everyone knew the stories of Frederick the Great, and every officer wanted to emulate him. According to a historian Alan Palmer in his book The Kaiser, Warlord of the Second Reich, quote, Prussia was the supremely militaristic society of the post-Napoleonic era. While in more liberal Britain, politicians would wear ties and frock coats, the uniform of the civilian, the court in Berlin was dominated by military dress. Dark blue uniforms long leather boots, iron crosses, the death's head emblem. It was a nation and a society, organised by the military, for the military. This militarism and nationalism meant that Prussia instinctively wants to dominate the German Confederation. Its first move was to create a customs union, which did away with the old tariffs and barriers to trade within Germany. Austria hated this, as it hated any major reform, and so refused to join, isolating itself and allowing Prussia to establish economic dominance. Okay, the final thing that we need to talk about in terms of the background to Prussia and Germany is the rise of German nationalism. As we've discussed, the notion of Germany was a pretty nebulous one, but there was a building notion that German-speaking people had the right to their own nation. This began during the resistance to Napoleon, and while it was repressed by Metternich and his followers in the years after, 
it refused to die. These German nationalists tend to be liberal, middle-class, educated types, not the kind of guys that made up the Prussian elite. These ideas, allied with social pressures from the lower classes, exploded in the revolutionary year of 1848. Prussia and Austria, along with most of Europe, were hit by popular uprisings that demanded political, economic and social reforms. In France, this led to the overthrow of the king and eventual rise of Emperor Napoleon III. It very nearly toppled the Habsburgs in Austria and led to a brutal war with Hungary. Most of the rulers of the German states tried to come to some sort of accommodation with the revolutionaries to try and save themselves. Prussia did, you know, the other thing, and called in the army. This led to a series of bloody battles in the streets of Berlin, as the army attempted to storm the barricades. While soldiers were making some progress in eliminating the uprising, it was not a good look to see soldiers of Prussia slaughtering civilians, And so the Prussian king, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, did what kings have always done throughout history when faced by revolution. Make loads of promises now, wait for everything to calm down, and then double-cross. He pulled back the army, clothed himself in the revolutionary colours of red, black and gold, and promised German freedom and German unity. But when the tide turned against the revolution, he made that abrupt about-face. He did permit a Prussian parliament to be formed and for a constitution to be promulgated, but both were almost entirely toothless. The king still ruled by divine right and held almost all the power. But the underlying problems were still there. German nationalism still simmered. German liberals still wanted reform. Enter into the fray Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband. While he was the Prince Consul to the United Kingdom, he always considered himself to be a loyal German and a German nationalist at that. He wanted to see the whole of Germany, bar Austria of course, united under the leadership of Prussia. But crucially, it had to be a liberal Prussia, not the autocratic Prussia of old. Yet, even he could see that this would not happen organically. This was a project that required careful nurturing. He struck up a relationship with Crown Prince Wilhelm, the heir to the Prussian throne while he was in Britain during the 1848 revolution, and chanted constantly on his idea of a united liberal Germany, and believed they'd managed to win him around. For her part, Queen Victoria has struck up a great friendship with Wilhelm's wife, Augusta. She wrote of her, quote, I find her so clever, so amiable, so well informed and so good. Her position is a very difficult one. She is too enlightened and liberal for the Prussian court not to have enemies. But I believe that she is a friend to us and our family. And I do believe that I have a friend in her who may be most useful to us. Their friendship, struck up first as fellow royals, developed further and blossomed as fellow liberals and fellow mothers-in-law. By the start of the 1850s, the King of Prussia, Friedrich Wilhelm IV, was ailing. He had suffered a series of strokes, and there were questions being raised about his mental faculties. This meant that it would likely not be long before Albert's friend, Crown Prince Wilhelm, came to the throne. But he was in his fifties, and would likely not be king for long. Albert needed to look to the next generation, and so saw Wilhelm's teenage son as the catalyst for achieving his dream. Prince Friedrich, because 
all Prussian royals, or either called Friedrich Wilhelm or Friedrich Wilhelm, was born on the 18th of October 1831 at the New Palace in Potsdam. Fritz, as he was better known, was Wilhelm and Augusta's only son, and so was, from an early age, seen as a future Prussian king. Despite this, he did not allow it to go to his head, and grew up as the epitome of the perfect son. Generous, unselfish, kind and dedicated to his studies. He was extremely handsome, with a shock of red hair and immediately showed a healthy Prussian fascination with the military. This rather concerned his mother, who wished to imbue him with her own liberal worldview. He witnessed military action for the first time during the 1848 revolution, watching from the palace window as Prussian soldiers fired on demonstrators. He went with his family to England after that, and found a home at Windsor Castle, where Prince Albert treated him to a series of lectures on his dream for united liberal Germany. This, along with his mother's influence, managed to turn him from a traditional Prussian conservative into a more anglophilic liberal, and began to turn heads when he returned to the Prussian court as he engaged in debate with conservative nobles and generals. He entered the army in 1849, but also broke with tradition by becoming the first Prussian prince to receive a university education. Previously, the army had been considered to be the Prussian noble's finishing school, but Augusta wanted far more for her son, and so enrolled him in the University of Bonn, where he studied literature, history and law. Alongside this, he studied under a tutor to learn English, as well as to better understand British history and culture. He even attended Church of England services at Bonn, further marking himself out as a true Anglophile like his mother. All of this made him the absolute perfect candidate to be the centrepiece of Albert's scheme. He was not only a liberal, but had a liberal mother as well, both of whom could use their power and influence to mould Prussian society and unite Germany under progressive values. While planning had been going on behind the scenes for some time for a marriage alliance, things really got going in the spring of 1851, when Victorian Albert invited Fritz and his family over to England to visit the Great Exhibition and introduce them to the woman whom they hoped would be his future wife, Princess Victoria Adelaide Mary Louisa, better known as Vicky. She was born on the 21st of November 1840 and was, from the off, something of a disappointment. Victoria wrote the following of it in her journal, quote, Just before the early hours of the morning of the 21st, I felt very uncomfortable and with difficulty aroused Albert from his sleep. Tried to get to sleep again, but by four I got very bad and both the doctors arrived. My beloved Albert was so dear and kind. Lukox said the baby was on the way and everything was all right. We both expressed joy that the event was at hand and I didn't feel at all nervous. After a good many hours suffering, a perfect little child was born at two in the afternoon. But, alas, a girl, not a boy, as we both had so hoped and wished for. We were, I'm afraid, sadly disappointed, but yet our hearts were full of gratitude for God, having brought me safely through my ordeal and having such a strong, healthy child. Even in 19th century liberal Britain, with a popular queen regnant on the throne no less, it was still considered imperative to have a male heir. Indeed, Victoria was overheard saying to Albert shortly after the birth, quote, Never mind, the next will be a prince. Albert was no different, writing to his brother, quote, Albert, 
Father of a daughter? You will laugh at me. Mother and father, though, quickly got over their disappointment. The British people, on the other hand, loved the new princess from the get-go. The previous generation of royals had been appalling at producing children, and no one wanted to return to those days. They already had an heir on the throne, and there was promise for plenty more where she came from. It also meant that the Queen's uncle, the hated Duke of Cumberland, was no longer the heir presumptive, which is a big bonus. Even as a newborn, she was treated with the reverence merited of the Queen's first child. She slept in a mahogany crib shaped like a magnificent seashell, lined with green silk, embroidered in arabesque with a draped canopy of gold and silver silk hanging overhead, surmounted by a crown. Not a subtle piece of furniture, I think we can all agree, and maybe contributed to her becoming somewhat big-headed. She was christened in a silver gilt lily font, specially designed for the occasion by Albert. This has had a very long life, being used for pretty much every royal christening of significance since, including that of George, Charlotte and Louis, children of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Her christening gown of Honiton lace had a similarly long life, only having been recently retired before George's christening for being too fragile. Vicky was styled the Princess Royal, a title denoting the monarch's eldest daughter, which had been brought over from France by Queen Henrietta Maria, whom Queens of England podcast listeners will remember well. Victoria was the fourth princess to receive the title, which is currently held by Princess Anne. Vicky was a very popular child. She was educated, along with her brother Bertie, under the care of her father's friend and advisor, Baron von Stockmar. His mantra was that, quote, The object of education is to develop and strengthen the good, and subdue or diminish the evil dispositions of our nature. As one might imagine, this did not mean for a thrilling or caring education, but Vicky thrived nonetheless. She spoke fluent French and German at a young age, and impressed her family, tutors and governesses with her precociousness. Indeed, she far outshone her siblings in intellect, especially her first brother Bertie, whose disposition was far more inclined to other pursuits. Unlike many of her royal female forebears, she received an education almost as rigorous as that of her brothers. She was taught maths, English, literature, language, history and scripture, as well as the more traditionally female arts of drawing, music and dancing. Her childhood was not all roses, though. Her governess, Lady Littleton, noted that, quote, The princess hit her head under the nurse's arm yesterday, and on the queen peeping around to see why she did it, her royal highness was detected in that safe corner, sucking her necklace, which is forbidden. Then the queen said, Oh fie, naughty, naughty, upon which the child looked shyly at her and held up her mouth to be kissed. The queen is, like all very young mothers, never thinks the baby makes progress enough or is good enough. On another occasion, Lady Littleton wrote, quote, Oh dear, I wish there were no portraits being done of the Princess Royal, and that all her fattest and biggest and most forbidding-looking relations, some with bald heads, some with great moustaches, some with black bushy eyebrows, some with staring, distorted, short-sighted eyes, did not always come to see her at once and make her naughty. Poor little body. She is always expected to be good, civil and sensible. And the Duke of Cambridge, the Queen's uncle, tells the Queen to make it better, but it's very odd that the princess should ever cry. Vicky also inherited something of Victoria's sense of self-importance, some might call it haughty arrogance, and fearsome temper. 
One time, when a party that she was particularly enjoying ended, she, quote, fell into a transport of rage, shrieked and roared in the open carriage, luckily in a lonely part of the road. When told off once of misbehaving, she told Lady Littleton, quote, I am very sorry, but I mean to be just as naughty next time. She passed most of her early life at Buckingham Palace in London or at Windsor Castle. But when she was five, Albert bought a new holiday residence on the Isle of Wight, named Osborne House. This was a private place, where the family could act with total informality. For the children, its most amazing feature was a miniature Swiss chalet in the grounds given over to their use, where they learned practical skills such as carpentry, cooking and gardening. There, and later at their other residence of Balmoral in Aberdeenshire, the children would put on plays and musical recitals for their parents, and be just like normal people, not the royal family of the most powerful nation and empire in the world. Away from the cares of duty, these places were mini-paradises for Vicky and her family, a place to which, in later life, she would long to return. She was 11 years old when, following her parents' invitation, Wilhelm, Augusta, and their 19-year-old son, Fritz, and sister Louise, came over to England to visit the Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace. This event had been Albert's baby, a spectacular celebration of technology and design, but also a demonstration of British financial, cultural, and industrial power. It is considered to be the first ever World's Fair, and was a complete triumph both for Britain and Albert personally. This Prussian visit was akin to the first time that Albert had come over to visit Victoria while she was still only a princess. There were no plans to arrange an engagement or thrash out a marriage alliance. This was more of a recce, really, to see if both sides would be open to the idea once they'd all met. It was actually touch and go if the Prussians would even come. The crowned heads of continental Europe were still reeling from the tumult of 1848, and feared not only what may happen if they left the country for a foreign visit, but also for their own safety, as the exhibition was expected to draw in ordinary working Britons in their hundreds of thousands. Who knew what kind of anarchists and assassins may lurk within the huddled masses? Albert, though, wrote to his friend Wilhelm, assuring him of his safety. And so the Prussians did come over, arriving in London on the 29th of April, 1851. Vicky met Fritz for the first time in the Chinese drawing room at Buckingham Palace. The very reason why Princess Louise had been invited on the trip was so as to give them an excuse to invite the young Vicky along as company for her. However, the Prussian princess apparently barely said a word, brought up as she was with the maxim that women should be seen and not heard. Vicky, however, had been brought up differently. While Fritz addressed her in faltering English, she replied to him in fluent German, extolling the virtues of the incredible Great Exhibition and engaging the much older Prussian in intellectual discussion. The next day, she gave Fritz a tour of the exhibition, and again wowed him with her knowledge, curiosity, and confidence in her own opinions. They spent a great deal of time together over the next fortnight, learning more about each other. Vicky, confident, showy-offy, and vivacious, seems to have made a real mark on the shy and subdued Prussian prince. Fritz later commented, quote, you can't form an idea what a sweet little thing the crown princess was at the time. Such childlike simplicity combined with a woman's intellect and dignity. She seemed almost too perfect. So perfect indeed that I often caught myself wondering whether she really was a human being. 
Indeed, the only black mark on the occasion came, typically, when Vicky fell into one of her customary temper tantrums. Told that she would not be allowed to attend the opera because it went on too late, she raged in front of everybody and stormed off in a huff, refusing to say goodnight to the guests. It was not just Vicky, though, that made a great impression on Fritz. He was utterly enthralled by England and her royal family. She marvelled at the respect that everyone had for the monarchy, and how they could wander the great exhibition with little fear of the assassin's bullet. Coming from a country that only three years previously attempted a violent overthrow of the monarchy, this was an amazing cultural shift. He loved how relaxed everyone in the royal family was in each other's company, especially at Osborne, far different from the stiff and stern Hohenzollerns. He engaged Vicky and Albert in stimulating political and philosophical discussion, and became an even more determined Anglophile than he had already been, now fully entrenched in his view that Britain's was the example to which Prussia should aspire to emulate. Quote, I'm extremely pleased with Fritz, Victoria wrote in her journal during the visit, describing him as, quote, so right and liberal-minded. Fritz asked Albert to be his mentor as well on the trip, a request to which the consort gladly agreed. Victoria later wrote in her journal, quote, Never did a visit go off better. We all lived so comfortably and happily together, quite en famille and quite at home. Vicky has formed an amazing friendship for the young prince. Might this one day lead to a union? God knows it would make us very happy, for I never saw a more amiable, unspoiled and good young man than he is. This is all in God's hands. We can only help it and wish it. Following the visit, Vicky and Fritz corresponded regularly, as did their mothers, further deepening their bond. She even gave him a touching gift. At a dance back in Berlin, Fritz once glanced furtively around before showing one of his friends a golden locket with a portrait of Vicky within it. He then apparently kissed it tenderly and placed it in a pocket above his heart. There truly was no doubt about where his affections lay. However, as we all know, love was rarely of great import when it came to royal weddings. There the maxim always is, expedience, 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 and any change of wind in Europe could upset this delightfully adorable apple cart. Enter the Crimean War. The Ottoman Empire was collapsing, and Russia was taking any chance it could to gobble up territory, with its chief goal being to capture the great capital of Istanbul. This was the greatest diplomatic crisis Europe had faced since the fall of Napoleon, and Britain and France stood together to challenge the Tsar. Prussia sat in the middle, unsure of which way to turn. In the end, King Friedrich Wilhelm elected not to intervene, essentially siding with the pro-Russian faction at court, and leading a policy of ostentatious neutrality. Victoria and Albert were furious. In a letter to the Prussian king, Victoria dealt him a savage burn. Quote, it is sad that Prussia has renounced her position as a great power by this behaviour. Prince Wilhelm and Fritz, for their part, opposed the king's actions and suffered greatly for it at court, and this appears to have saved the situation with Victoria and Albert. Indeed, it perhaps only further confirmed for them that he was the man to bond Britain and Prussia together. Vicky went on her first state visit in 1855, being invited along with her parents and brother Bertie to Paris by Emperor Napoleon III. 
While she had been excluded from the ceremonial court proceedings during Fritz's visit, the now 14-year-old Vicky was completely incorporated into proceedings. This was important training for her. Acting as the royal hostess was one of the consort's most important duties, and she was extremely excited to see how it was all done. She was also particularly keen on Empress Eugenie, Napoleon's Spanish wife, who was seen as the ultimate height of sophistication and style. For a girl who was departing her childhood and developing into a beautiful and confident woman, Eugenie was the perfect role model, a marked difference from her rather plain and occasionally frumpy mother. The highlight of the trip was a fairy tale ball at the Palace of Versailles. Dressed in a French-style gown of silk trimmed with pale peach roses, she was driven to the palace in Napoleon's coach, while her family trailed behind. Once there, the British princess danced in front of around 5,000 guests with the French emperor, blushing and nervous, but impressing all onlookers. Before departing, Empress Eugenie gave Vicky a bracelet of rubies and diamonds containing strands of her own hair, a touching gift. Vicky apparently, quote, melted into tears. This had been her first real test as a future queen, and she had passed it with flying colours. Being a princess so far had been akin to a fairy tale, but there was still one vital chapter yet to be turned. Barely three weeks later, Fritz came over to Britain for another visit. He was there to make his final decision about whether or not to make an offer of marriage to Vicky. The venue was Balmoral, the great estate in northeastern Scotland, and Fritz was treated there as if he were already a member of the family. He had grown up a lot since his visit four years prior. Now a tall and well-built man, he marked a rather dashing figure, yet was still remarkably free of the coldness that so often infected Prussian noblemen. Victoria commented that, quote, Fritz looks so well, altogether looking more manly, and his moustache becomes him. Since his last visit, he completed his university studies and been given his first military command. He was a very popular leader with his men, sharing in their hardships and possessing a real talent for remembering the names and faces of the most common of soldiers. Yet, of the two, it was Vicky who had changed the most. She had grown taller, now towering over her mother at five foot two, and was considered to be far better looking than she had been. But it wasn't her looks that captivated those that knew Vicky. It was her steady gaze, ready wit and good humour that they remembered. She was stubborn to be sure, quick to judge and could be very cutting and candid, something that would later cause her a world of trouble in later years. But at the time, she was very much loved and admired. She'd also recently discovered boys, enjoying flirting with soldiers in particular. While at a military review at the age of 13, she deliberately dropped her handkerchief over the side of the carriage and delighted in watching three handsome soldiers scrambling to pick it up for her. Her mother, thoroughly disapproving of such antics, ordered the soldiers back, forcing her daughter to get out and pick it up herself. This, the sheepish and embarrassed Vicky did, apparently blushing deeply. After a welcoming meal at Balmoral, during which Vicky and Fritz chatted easily in French and German, the prince was taken out shooting by her father, some classic male bonding there. Victoria and Albert had made a promise that they would never force their children into marriages that they despised, and so wanted to do their due diligence, but it was very clear that this was the perfect match. The next day, Fritz went to Victoria and Albert and told them that, quote, It has long been my wish to beg the princess to be my wife, 
I find Vicky so sweet, so cannot wait any longer, and so must pour out my heart. Her parents readily agreed. Victoria wrote in her journal that, quote, We must thank God for such a treasure as good Fritz, who is so dear, amiable, so pure-minded, noble, religious, and honest, with much good sense and right feeling. I like him so much, and feel that our dear Vicky will be as safe with him as she is with us. A few days later, the royal family went on a walking trip up Craignarbon, the Rock of the Woman. Vicky and Fritz were at the back of the party. Suddenly, he picked up a sprig of heather and offered it to her as a symbol of good fortune. He then kissed her for the first time and said that he hoped that she could come to Prussia. She said that she would be delighted to go for a year. Fritz replied that he hoped that she could stay forever. She blushed red with excitement. Will he tell her parents, she asked. No, no, he replied. She could tell them herself. Then, rather adorably, they shook hands and continued on their way. When she got home, Vicky threw herself in her parents' arms, weeping for sheer joy. The episode is recorded in Victoria's journal, and it's so cute that I will quote a good chunk of it. Quote, When we came home and could see Vicky alone, we spoke to her. When I asked her whether she felt the same about Fritz as he did about her, she said, oh yes, with an indescribably happy look. Albert continued that Fritz was very excellent and very good, and that we should give her to him with perfect confidence. Albert then said Fritz was very anxious to speak to her, and so that he would go and fetch him. She was agitated, but without any hesitation she went into her father's room, and soon they both came out, she having given her answer to his request that she should marry him, and they expressed their joy and gratitude, and it was a beautiful sight to see the expression of real happiness in their faces. Vicky behaved as a girl of 18 would, so naturally, quietly, and modestly, showing at the same time how very strong her feelings are. Fritz thanked us again, saying that he could not describe his happiness. We then left him, I embracing him tenderly, as I quite feel to love him as my own child. Albert later wrote to Fritz that, quote, From the moment you declared your love and embraced her, the child in her vanished. I said it in a previous episode, but it is just so amazing to have this account of the royal proposal. So few of these have recorded through history, and I couldn't resist giving you a good long quote of it. And it is with Queen Victoria's excited words ringing in your ears that I will leave you for this week. Next time, we will see Vicky and Fritz married, and Britain's young princess travel over to her new German home. The families may have been absolutely delighted with this match, but the British and Prussian people? They would take a very different view. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.